Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and my guest this week is an expert on when we do things. His name is Dan Pink, and he's the best-selling author of the book, When. When did I meet him? Earlier this month at Chicago Ideas Week. I was emceeing and moderating. And in one segment, I interviewed Dan, then Catalyst Creative founder Amanda Slavin, then Carolyn Tish Blodgett, the global brand director for Peloton. The collection of knowledge and wisdom coming from the three turned into a seminar on how businesses created their stories, and how and when to pass them on, and how people take them in. I may run that entire session as a podcast in itself, just waiting on the audio. Anyway, after the session, Dan and I sat for chat in my hotel room, where we were able to take the conversation further. I guarantee you one thing. When you're done listening to Dan, you'll be thinking about when you do what you do, and if you could be better at it if you did it at a different time. I'm telling you, after you listen to Dan Pink, you're never quite the same. So let's get straight to Dan Pink. Well, we just were on stage, had a wonderful conversation, and I'm already trying to put in practice all that you have bestowed upon me. Oh, wow, great. But since this audience wasn't in attendance, let's go back and go over some of what okay. you taught me. And I guess I should just start with the, an introduction of why your book was so important to me. Uh, it was important to me because it starts with a story. Mm. Uh, you write about behavioral science. You had a lot of statistics in, in this book. There's a lot of numbers to prove points, but you used a very compelling story to make your point. And it dates back to World War I. Why did you do that? And can you tell me how you found out about the story of this ship that set off from New York toward the UK in, was it 1915, May 1st? Why did you choose to start with that story? Well, I wanted to start with the story to draw people in um, and to make it very readable. One, one of my tenets as a writer is to try is to try to make the writing and the ideas as accessible as possible. And so there are various ways to do that. Stories are one way to do that. And so this is a book, this book, When, has a lot of science in it. And I felt what I wanted to do was start with accessibility and, and relevance. So told the story of the Lusitania, which is a fairly well-known story uh, about a ship that takes off in New York, uh, going to uh, the UK during the, the early days of World War I. There are German U-boats in the water. People are warning them not to do this. And the Lusitania uh, gets hit by a U-boat. And that's one of the catalysts for Britain, Britain's entry into World War One, and arguably the U.S. entry into World War One. Uh, so it's this cataclysmic event. But I felt like in reading it, there was a bit of hidden science in there, in that the captain of that ship made some really, really bad decisions that led to them being attacked by that German submarine. And I think it's arguable that, plausible, that he made those bad decisions because he made them 
in the afternoon. That the whole reason for the sinking of Lusitania could be that our cognitive abilities are not the same throughout the day. And so this is a way to say, whoa, wait a second, this is relevant to me. This, these, this concept of timing can literally be life and death, that literally it can have geopolitical consequences. At two o'clock, we're just not thinking at our best. Most, most in general, are. right. In general, we're not. And this, is, and this ends up being the core idea at the start of, of, of the book, which is that when you take the unit of a day, they're all, timing means a lot of different things. And the, the, sort of the big idea is that we think timing is an art, but it's really a science. When we make our decisions about when to do stuff, we make them based on intuition, we make them based on guesswork, we make them based on default, and that's the wrong way to do it. We should be making them based on this very rich body of science, of evidence that is out there. Uh, and so if you start at the unit of a day, which is a very important unit to start with because it is inexorable. Uh, we, we, you know, things like a, a week, we could have declared a week has eight days. We could have declared a week has 13 days. So we have some control. Human beings control the length of a week, the length of a second. But the length of a day is completely out of our control because it's a natural phenomenon. We're on a planet. And so the day has enormous effect on how we feel and how we perform. And one of the central findings in this rich array of science is that our cognitive abilities, our brain power, does not stay the same throughout the day. It changes. It changes in predictable ways. It can change in pretty extreme ways. And what, what the best time to do something depends on what we're doing. And so starting with a story like that was a way to draw people in and say, wait a second, this is a book about science, but it's a book about decision-making. It's a book about human behavior. It's a book about who we are as individuals. What was it that set you off on this path to write a book like when? I'm thinking about behavioral science mm -hmm. now. When I was a kid, was there behavioral science? Sure. Well, of course there was. That's a really good, it's a really interesting point, Cal. What, what got me interested in this book was just frustration. And then I was making crappy when decisions myself and wanted to figure out how to make it better. That was really the catalyst Did, what's for me. What's an example of that? Oh, like, 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 I had no idea what time of the day I should exercise. What's the best time of day for me to exercise, okay? What's, um, when should I start a project? When should I stop a project that's not working? When in the day should I do my writing? When in the day should I do my interviewing? When in the day should I do my other kinds of stuff? And I was just basically making it up. And I said, there's gotta be a better way to do it than simply just pulling it out of my butt. These, these kinds of pretty consequential decisions. And because I have this longstanding interest in behavioral science, I was curious enough to say, wait a second, is there any research out there on this topic of timing? And it turned out there was a huge amount of research, more than I ever expected, but it was spread across a couple dozen different disciplines. So it wasn't really housed anywhere. So if you talk about, um, okay, what's the relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation, okay? There's a whole group of people in economics who work on that issue, who've been working on that issue for a very, very long time. You don't have to look to molecular biology for that question. You don't have to look to anesthesiology for that question. It lives in this domain. Whereas these timing questions were living in multiple domains whose participants, whose researchers were not talking to each other. And so, so there are different ways to get at the question of how does our mood, how does our behavior, how does our performance change over the course of a day? So you have molecular biologists doing that, you have chronobiologists doing that, but you also have economists doing that. You have social psychologists doing that. You have anthropologists doing that. And so what I found is all these folks spread across these different disciplines asking very similar questions. And 
it was never brought to the surface because it was living in dribs and drabs in these various fields. Is there a uniform time of day when it's best for everybody to exercise? No, but there are principles. And, and this, that's actually what you're saying is actually key in that what a lot of the guidance tells us is not so much uniform rules, but broader design principles that we can apply to our lives. So exercise is a good example of that. Here's what the research on exercise tells us. You should exercise, it depends on your goals. If your goal is habit formation, morning exercise is better. If your goal is weight loss, morning exercise seems to be a little bit better, although weight loss is very hard. If your goal is a mood boost, morning exercise is better because exercise, even relatively short exercise, gives us a mood boost that endures for a fairly long time. So if you exercise late in the day, you end up sleeping away some of that mood boost. Where if you exercise in the morning, you get that mood boost throughout the day. So that's the argument for morning exercise. Late afternoon, early evening exercise is better for other reasons. And a lot of it, to my amazement, has to do with body temperature, if you can believe that, because our body temperature changes over the course of a day. It reaches its peak around four, five, six, seven o'clock at night. And what happens when it reaches its peak? You have fewer injuries. That's one thing about afternoon and, and early evening exercise. So you have fewer injuries, and that largely because we think because you're literally more warmed up. They always tell you stretch before stretching you write- is stretching is nonsense. Stretching don't, is nonsense. Don't, don't stretch. No, here's what, okay, because uh, I've looked at the research what? on stretching because I'm a runner. Oh, no. I, I'm Dan a runner. Okay, no, no. says stretching is Static nonsense. stretching, forget about it. Uh, dynamic stretching is okay, like before a run or something like that. Dynamic stretching meaning like you're in motion while you're doing it, not simply just like pulling up your your leg while you're standing stationary. But stationary? No, I'm, I'm interested yeah. in this because I go to a, well, certainly a marathon, but even like a, a half marathon or... 5K. You see people out there, they're stretching. Fine. So this is, just, this is just because it's been passed on to them. You need to stretch before the race. It's like what Amanda, who we were talking with today, are the millions of people watching out there and listening out there don't know this, but she had this lovely tale about meatloaf. why her mother cut off the ends of meat, or somebody cut off the ends of meatloaf. And it was only because the Pre- the previous generation did that. The previous generation did that. And when you follow the story back, it turned out that the whole reason that the first person started cutting off the ends of meatloaf is that the pan she was cooking in was too small and they burned. All right. So it's basically just just tradition. Dynamic stretching is actually very valuable. But forget about that for a moment. Let's go back to afternoon exercise. All right. Better for avoiding injury. People enjoy afternoon and early evening exercise more than morning exercise. How do you know that? Because we have self-reports about when, what, what, what people do. You can, there's all kinds of research on, on you know, how, much do you, how much did you enjoy your workout? How did you enjoy your workout? Were you eager to do it? How did you feel while you were doing it? And people actually report much more enjoyment in late afternoon and early evening exercise. And then the other thing that's very interesting is that performance is better. So during that time of day, in general, our lung function is, is, is higher, our hand-eye coordination is better, um, and, and there are actually some not insignificant effects on speed. So there actually are a disproportionate number of world records and speed events, things like speed skating, uh, uh, swimming sprints, uh, set between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. So again, this if you want to avoid injury, if you want to avoid injury, enjoy your workout or perform better late afternoon, early evening. If you want to form a habit, lose weight, or have an enduring mood boost, morning. So I'm putting this together here, 
And the captain on the Lusitania, he basically has a choice about how he's going to guide the ship in. He knows there's German subs around, and he knows that his ship can outrace any German sub. Right. And if he runs it fast if enough. If he runs it fast enough. Yeah. And he doesn't put it up at top speed, even mm-hmm. though he has an idea that there may be German subs in in the area. And not only that, but he stops to make like the, what you write in the book, a four-point bearing where it takes him like 40 right. minutes and he's going in a straight line right. just where right. the torpedoes can hit him. Like, why is he doing this? Well, maybe he wouldn't have done it at 8 a.m. It's just we don't think best. We don't think what we want to have when we think about something like the Lusitania, we want to have a dramatic explanation, an explanation you can put on a huge headline uh, with geopolitical implications. But it could be that this is a guy, Captain Turner, who was up all night and made a decision at what we know is one of the worst times of day to make a decision. And he could have bungled precisely because of that. With, when the, with the Lusitania, there are all of these stories about conspiracy and hidden armaments and was it self-sabotage and blah, 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 blah. And so we're going for those elaborate, baroque, lovely to look at kinds of explanations when in fact, it could have been just a guy like you and me who didn't get enough sleep and made a, deci- made a bad decision at what we know is the worst time of day for making decisions. And he should have just gone for a workout. Oh, oh, late in the afternoon. He would have yeah. had the best time. He, he would have. What he should have done. What he should have done is gotten enough sleep the night before, and and made this decision. You know, if he could earlier in the day. And then he could have worked out in the afternoon. Right. And- he could have been at shore and had a good workout in the afternoon, and maybe set a world record. I have never done this with my regimens. I guess I live by. Inter- when do you exercise? Uh, I tend to exercise when I can, yeah, because I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it depends on when the free time in the day is. Sure. And also it depends on what exercise, if I'm going to lift weights, mm-hmm. uh, it might be at the gym early in the morning. If I'm going to climb a rope at the Santa Monica Pier and get on the rings, you didn't know I was a Spartan obstacle racer. No, I just I, started. Oh, just, are you doing I, the Spartan race? Yes. Oh, cool. I've done a few of them now. Nice. And now I can get to the top of the rope. Okay, cool. And if I'm going to do that, that's generally at just the time you told me to Which, get the best results. Like at 4 o'clock, yeah. 5 o'clock. And now I know. Okay, that's why. There Makes you go. Sense. I'm here to serve, Cal. <laughs> okay, what about... Food. What about it? Is there... I'm, I'm pro-food. You're pro-food. Yeah. But are you... Is there better times to eat? Did, have we done the meatloaf faux pas with breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Well, I mean, I think there, there, are, a couple of, there are a couple of ways at that. So what we know from the... there's So we always think of breakfast as the most important meal of the day. And, is it? Is it? Mm, no. Um, uh, it's not that breakfast is bad. I just think that the evidence on breakfast is mixed. Don't stretch. Don't worry about yeah. breakfast. Keep going. Well, then. I mean, uh, here's a way to look at it. I, I look at it in some ways like stocks, all right? The stock of breakfast is overvalued. The stock of lunch is undervalued, all right? So, so here's the thing about breakfast. It doesn't, doesn't mean that everybody should skip breakfast. Not at all. What it means is that the evidence, uh, the evidence on whether you should have breakfast is a definitive maybe. 
Um, a lot of the research is inconclusive. A lot of it are what are called observational studies rather than randomized controlled trials. Right? There's a, I don't want to empty the room by talking about methodology, but there's a big difference there. So if I look at a bunch, of, if I observe a bunch of people and I say, wait a second, all these healthy people are eating breakfast, you can't conclude from that that they're healthy because they're eating breakfast, right? You see, what, you see what I mean? It could be healthier if they didn't eat breakfast. It could be healthier if they didn't eat breakfast. It could be that healthy people are more inclined to eat breakfast, not that, that, that healthiness is causing the breakfast. So you don't know that. So a lot of them are observational studies that show this correlation. They're not randomized controlled trials where we say, this group of 500 people are going to skip, are not going to have breakfast every day. This group is going to have breakfast. That's not what those, the, the, the breakfast research shows. Some of it's also funded by cereal, has been funded by cereal companies. So, uh, oh, so, so I, it's a definitive maybe because I'm a, I'm a breakfast eater. I eat breakfast. Um, and so, so I'm not saying forget about breakfast. All I'm saying is that the evidence isn't there that it is essential and the most important meal of the day. The evidence is actually in many ways stronger about the value of lunch. Why? And because it's part of a larger body of research on the importance of breaks, that, that lunch is a break. And what, what I started doing in this book when I was talking about the day, as I said, okay, I'm going to have a little section on breaks. And when I looked at the research on breaks, there was so much stuff there and it was so important that I ended up writing a whole chapter on breaks because the evidence was so powerful and so bountiful. And what the research on breaks says is that we should be taking more breaks we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And there's some very good evidence that taking a break for lunch actually improves your mood and your performance post-lunch. That a sad desk lunch, sitting at your desk with a tuna, soggy tuna sandwich in one hand and your mouse in the other hand, um, is actually not that good for us. Uh, and that the break of lunch is actually really important, is, is actually really important. Now, beyond that, there's some very, very interesting new research. Uh, a lot of it led by a fellow named Sachin Panda at Scripps, in uh, Southern California. And what he has found is that the when of eating might be more important than we realize. There's some very early research. A lot of it initially was done in, in rats. But what, what, what Sachin is showing is that there's some interesting early evidence that if we confine our eating to a certain period of the day, that is if we confine our eating during a certain eight, maybe 10 hour period, and never eat outside of that window, that that can have an effect on weight control and metabolic health. So what it would mean is maybe something like having your first bite of food at 10 in the morning, and then, so let's say nine hours later would be what? 7 p.m. And not having any food after 7 p.m. or before 10 a.m. And that if you eat, the when of what you, the when of your eating can play an enormous role in weight control and in metabolic health. Well, we were talking in the car coming over here after we spoke at the oh, event. Oh, thanks for giving me a ride. I walked. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I didn't see you. I'd have been happy to. But we, we were talking, so consider yourself sitting in the next seat at the car okay. here, about how in Spain they invented the siesta. They took a break in the afternoon. And when you put it all together, they get something to eat, plus... They're sleeping through the time that the worst decisions are going to be made. Then they're up and they're at it again. There's a reason that became a tradition, um, that they were answering some kind of call of their bodies, of their brains, of their souls, if you believe in souls. And 
I think there's an argument for a modern siesta. Uh, again, not two hours, everybody should take up two hours in the afternoon to go have a ginormous plate of seafood paella and three glasses of <laughs> tempranillo, which is cool some days, I would that guess. sounded good to me. Um, but, um, but, but some kind of systematic breaks, especially during the afternoon when we know, because we know that certain periods of the afternoon, there's a huge, huge, huge decrease in performance on a number of different levels in corporate performance, education, especially healthcare, judicial decision-making, jury decision-making, and that, and that we need to be systematic about our breaks. And what we know about the best breaks is that we should be taking more breaks. We should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And the best breaks are these. Their best breaks are social rather than solo. So there's some interesting evidence showing that breaks with other people are more replenishing than breaks on our own. So that's like the social side of that. Uh, we know that breaks, uh, breaks are better if they're moving rather than stationary, if they're outside rather than inside. Uh, and if they're fully detached rather than semi-detached. So a break where, hey, I'm going to go take a walk around the block and look at my Instagram feed. That's not a break. Um, oh, and you're still tethered. Yes, tethered, right. The, the, what you want, you don't want to be tethered, you want to be detached. And in many ways, the siesta is a, is a form of that. We're not going to, we're not going to go no, back. No, but you know what yeah. hit me when you're talking about this? All of these young people who are tethered to their phone, does this mean that they never get a break? Could be, could be, and that's not healthy. That's not that's not how we're that's not how we're wired. The science is overwhelming that we need to have breaks, and I think even more not only the technology but just sort of the overall business culture, especially here in the United States, we have a culture of powering through, where we feel like the way to get more work done, the way to get better work done, is simply to power through. So if you're feeling a little bit of a dip, if you're feeling a little bit of decline, power through, man up. You know, even though most people in America have no, you know, no genetic ancestral connection to the Puritans, I think there's a puritanical American thing, side about this where it's like not only more effective to power through, but it's morally virtuous to power through. And the evidence says no. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> human beings. Human Don't be power through. Human beings need breaks. And what we see in a lot of research on high performance, particularly with musicians and athletes, is that the most elite musicians, the best athletes, are intentional about taking breaks. Anders Ericsson, the guy who did the lion's share of the research on what's called deliberate practice, but how do people become great? How do people become stars? How do they practice? Found that among elite musicians, the elite musicians took more breaks than the non-elite musicians. The elite musicians were more likely to take naps and there's a whole line of research on naps too, that naps can be very, very useful to us. So what we need is we need to actually change our way of thinking about it because we've gotten it wrong. Our, you know, Sometimes our intuition is right, sometimes our intuition is wrong. Sometimes you look at our intuition and the science confirms it. This is something where our intuition and our moral and cultural practices are at odds with the science. So we look at somebody, and, and I think it's changing though. I think in some ways the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, if somebody pulled an all-nighter, they were a star. They were a badass. They were committed. Now, we know a lot more about the science of sleep. It's reached public consciousness. And so now somebody comes in bragging about pulling an all-nighter or not getting any sleep for three weeks. And we're like, whoa, hey, who, ha. You go home and get some sleep. You're probably hurting your performance. You're probably hurting other people's performance because you're so sleep deprived. So my goal is to have something along the lines of, you know, instead of saying, oh, look at Cal, he's such a badass. He hasn't taken a break 
you know, all afternoon. He's worked straight through, heads down from eight at eight in the morning until six at night. What I want to do is say, wow, look at Cal. He's taking a, a, a 10 minute walk break. What a badass. You're getting me to think about everything that I do in a completely different way. Was there- All I'm trying to do is get you to think about what you're doing. Because I think most of us don't think about, myself included, we don't think about what we're doing. We operate on default. William James, the great philosopher, the father of, of psychology, as it's practiced now in, in the United States, you know, says most of us go through life, his, his line, only half awake. Only half awake because so much of what we do is by default. So much of what we do is unconscious. There are efficiency gains with that. But I think in a lot of cases, and what I'm trying to do here is I just want people to start thinking about their lives in a multidimensional way. We're intentional about what we do. We have to-do lists. We're intentional at some level about how we do it. We, we take training and so forth. We're intentional about who we do it with. We don't just collaborate and hire whoever walks in the door first. But when it comes to when we do things, we're not intentional about it. We don't think it matters, and it does. All right. I'm with you. I'm going to really start to think about when I do things and why. I don't know how this is going to take me into the future, but it started when we had the conversation at the conference. This idea of where you're going now, looking at people's habits mm -hmm. and certainly your own in how they consume content oh, uh -huh. because I got a podcast here yep. and do I sit and think, okay, when should I stop the podcast? I do that only in the act. I don't plan That's it fine. before, Yeah, but I don't know when the person listening wants to stop the podcast. I don't know if they want 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. I have no idea. And, and you're telling me that I damn well better know. Well, I mean, I think it can be helpful, but I don't know how good the data are on podcasts, but I, when I, what I would like to see, like an online video, you can, you can look and see where are people dropping off. Um, if you have a five-minute video, are people bailing after 10 seconds? Are they bailing after two minutes? Are they sticking through all the way to five minutes? So you can get some feedback. You can get some feedback. You can get some feedback that way. Well, we I got a video going here. I don't, so I don't think, as you said, as you said before, there is no uniform. There's no uniform answer to that. To me, when it comes to the media consumption, which we were talking about before you turned on the microphone and the camera, is that. It's sort of the when of our consumption is, is actually different. And so it used to be that in many cases, think about the early days of radio, the early days of radio, pre-television days of radio, which were not that long ago. Radio was a purely intentional thing. You sat around in a living room like this, turn on the radio, and everybody had the intention of listening to the radio at that moment. They, they would sit and look at the radio as if it was a television. Exactly, because there wasn't, they didn't even know television. Television didn't exist. And so for a long time, certain kinds of media, particularly, and I want to move to video because I think that video is, is an incredibly powerful medium in general. And if you look at how people are using the, the internet, like, you know, nearly 60% of traffic on the internet is streamed video. All right, so that's a big portion of, of what's happening uh, over the air and, and, and across cable lines and how we're spending our time. But I think there's a difference there. I'll give you an example. So I like the show Silicon Valley, right? I will watch the show Silicon Valley on my phone 
when I am in an airport, when I'm in the back of a cab, when I am at a grocery store. Um, but I've never watched Silicon Valley the way that people listen to radio, right? Which is intentional. So what, for me, Silicon Valley, which is a great show, which I watch on the HBO uh, Go app, is interstitial media. It's for the interstices, it's for the spaces. There are a few shows that I'm intentional about in that radio way. So when, when it was on, it's no longer on. The Americans. My wife and I would sit on our couch and intend to watch the Americans. And so when, I think, when we think about media consumption, some of it, a small portion of it, it's basically three categories. Invisible, because there's all the stuff out there that we have no idea what it is, right? Invisible. Second category is interstitial. Stuff we're watching in the spaces of our lives. And then the smallest category is intentional. And to my mind, what's happening is, is that this one space, interstitial media, things that people are watching in the interstices, we're only at the very beginning stages of interstitial media as an art form. Because again, a lot of the construction of stories on conventional television come from the artifact of how it was distributed. So if you think about, so we were talking about this earlier. So why are television shows 30 minutes? Because that was the most efficient way to sell advertising on broadcast television, all right? And so when we said a television show was 30 minutes, that gave rise to the sitcom, right? There wasn't- there, I Love Lucy, three, Desi Arnaz created the, the three whole, camera the, shoot. The sit, exactly. The sitcom didn't exist before this format of half an hour. And what I'm saying is that with, when we think about interstitial media, we're, we're, we're going to have new formats. We're going to have new ways to tell stories. We're going to have a different grammar of storytelling. We're going to have a different vernacular of storytelling. My grandparents, Chicagoans all, when they were, say, in their 20s or 30s, a sitcom would have been a meaningless concept. All right? And now it's like this incredible art form. A police tele televised police procedural where there is a case and an investigation and a resolution within that space, that is an art form whose grammar and structure is a consequence of the space. And so when we have these interstitial media, I, I don't think we're, we don't have any idea where it's gonna go, but it's going to go somewhere. And any kind of medium, and we were talking about this earlier too, the first motion pictures were not motion pictures in the way that we think of it. Basically what it was, it's like we had plays, we had stage plays, right? And so the first motion pictures were, hey, let's get a camera and film the play, okay? Correct. That was the initial, those were in many cases, the initial way of making quote unquote movies. Then we said, well, wait a second. This is not simply a turbocharged form of this one art form. This is an art form in and of itself. And then you had, a, so now you have, a hun, only 100 years later, an entire vocabulary, an entire vernacular, an entire grammar of movie, move, making movies. We have the fade in and the fade out. We have, you know, we have all kinds of ways that we create this art form of, of movies. And I think right now for interstitial media, we're basically saying, oh, let's make a sitcom, but carve it up in three pieces that are shorter. Let's make a police procedural, but carve it up in four pieces that are shorter. And what I'm saying is, is that when we think of media as interstitial, we're going to have new media forms, new ways of telling stories, new grammar and vernacular storytelling. So how do I get 
at the cutting edge of this. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out myself. I mean, there are some, there's some, there's some interesting early moves here. So I, I started writing about this about six months ago, basically by examining my own media habits. And in that time, there have been a couple of interesting developments. One of them is that Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman have started a company called Quibi that is devoted to short form video. Now, again, I think that's another early step. It's very, they raised a billion dollars to do it. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Snap, uh, Snapchat has, has started actually having something akin to TV um, as a way to tell episodic stories using, the, using Snapchat. And so again, I think that those are interesting, but they are in many ways, they're the, the camera filming the play. A good start, but we haven't seen anything about where the medium can go. And how is the artist supposed to understand where the audience is going to take the work in? Um, that is a perennial question of art. And the great artists are saying, I'm going to make something unique and new and meaningful. And in some cases, it's going to find an audience. In some cases, it's not. What's going to happen, I think, is that someone's going to come up with something like the sitcom or the police procedural. Um, and the rest of us are going to go, oh. And, Why didn't I think of that? Right. And so I think that that's how it is. Um, that's how it is going to be. And as I said there, like I, I'm, I'm convinced that in the next... 10 years, someone will win an Emmy for a television series that has seven minute episodes, four minute episodes, six minute episodes. Someone will win an Emmy for video that is designed to be interstitial, not intentional. Intentional, intentionality is very, very valuable. It's the holy grail, but it's very rare. So you have intentionality with like Game of Thrones. That's, that's a lot of intentionality. That's why the franchise is so, is so incredibly important. But when it comes to these other kinds of things, interstitial um, is also valuable. So like, for instance, I, you know, like I think about the show called Billions, which I really like, and started by three founders. One of them is a guy named Brian Koppelman, this totally interesting, smart, creative dude. And I always think like, God, he might be like a little bit miffed if he knew that I've never watched Billions on a big, on a real TV on my couch ever. Only a few times I've actually watched a complete episode all the way through. I've watched it completely in an interstitial way, but I've seen every episode. I've seen every episode, and it wasn't designed for that. So imagine if you design for the interstices. Imagine if you design for the spaces. How much time do you spend when you get curious about a subject like this? How much effort do you put into understanding how people are watching content. Oh, it depends on, on this. This is just something that I, this is something that I've, I, I started writing about only about six six months ago. It's something my, I'm interested in myself, and it's something that I want to try to explore. Like I'm going to try to figure this out. And I think the way you figure out how do you create interstitial media is to create interstitial media. I don't I don't think you figure it out by going around and asking questions. Yeah, I, I think you can do that. I think it can give you some feedback. I don't think you I don't think you figure it out by gas bagging about it. I don't think you figure it out by writing, you know, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic about this. Right. And um, but I don't think I don't think it's figure out I don't think you figure it out by writing lots of pieces for the Atlantic about it. I think you figure it out by making stuff and seeing if it works. And it's probably not. The first incarnations are probably gonna stink. The difference I think between 
like a scientist and an artist, you've just taught me something here. All right. Because if I thought like a scientist and I went by what you just said, mm -hmm. it would be a hell of a lot easier to put something out knowing, well, this might stink, but it's all part of the research. But that's true. But here's the thing. I think that there's actually... Artists I, I, don't I, think I, that way. But I think artists... I actually think there's less of a boundary between there. Because what do scientists do? What, what I'm suggesting is, is in some ways scientific thinking and artistic thinking. And I don't even care what you call it. So a scientist, what does a scientist do? Scientist, she has hypotheses and she tests the hypotheses. So at some level, my, my point about interstitial media is a hypothesis. I hypothesize that that one element of the future of media, not all of media, is going to be this interstitial media, that people want consuming media in the spaces of their life rather than on the couch. People consuming phone shows rather than couch shows is gonna change the medium itself and generate new forms of storytelling. That's my hypothesis. I wanna test that hypothesis. How do I test it? At some level, I test it by being an artist, by making stuff. So, so I actually think that the scientific reasoning and the artistic reasoning on this are actually fairly simple. Well, the interesting thing, I don't know any artists who would do something, create something, thinking, well, this could stink. I mean, they're trying to create something. I think a lot something. of them do. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that they're okay. Yeah. I know, I, I've hardly met any. I think that they're, you know, they're, they're, but those are, those are the paintings you never see. Those are the songs you never hear. But I don't think they went into them. No. Thinking, ah, this may be a song nobody's but, ever going to hear. But I think that part of being an artist is knowing what stinks and what doesn't, and recognizing that when you generate stuff, when you create stuff, some of it's not going to be good. I don't know. I mean, all your listeners who are artists may have a different view on that. Well, because I'm not an artist. You're a behavioral scientist, correct? No, I'm just you a writer. You don't consider yourself a behavioral Absolutely scientist? Absolutely not. No. No, because do I have a laboratory? No. Do I have a PhD? No. I'm just a dude who writes stuff. Oh, that makes me sad. Really? Makes me happy. <laughs> Here I was thinking you're a behavioral scientist. You're at the cutting edge. Because it seems to me that there is like a difference between psychology and behavioral science. It seems like psychology has been moved forward to behavioral science. Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends on, I mean... It's like, wasn't psychology, we were kind of trying to think why things happen, whereas behavioral science is showing you this is why it happens. Um, I think that's part of it. I, I think part of it is that over the years, if you think about the history of psychology, which is a very, very young history as a discipline, psychology as a discipline is, you know, 100 years old. Uh, so if you think about something like um, mathematics, mathematics is a lot older than 100 years. Okay, so you think about other kinds of disciplines like that, um, um, and you know many of our disciplines are reasonably young, but psychology as a discipline is maybe 100 years old, and at the beginning it, it was basically a branch of philosophy. And so if you look at some of the psychologists whom we knew about when we took, you know, if you took Psychology 101 30 years ago, 40 years ago, is, you know, somebody like Maslow, Abraham Maslow. Oh, Maslow's hierarchy. There's no experimental evidence for that. It's basically a philosophy. It's a view. It might be right. It's helpful. It's good. It helps us understand the world. But it's not science in the way, it's not, Maslow did not do random, randomized controlled trials. He did not do the kind of behavioral science that I'm writing about and that is, is, is at the heart of a lot of the research in psychology in economics, in not so much in sociology, but in other kinds of disciplines. Do you think going forward 
the world is just going to be governed by numbers and that intuition will play a much smaller role? Um, no, I mean, not necessarily, but I, like, I, I think there's something to be said for, um, for numbers. Like, I don't think that human judgment and artistry is incompatible with data analysis. I think that the two pair very, very well. And so, so if I'm going into a hospital, if I'm going to have a medical procedure, then I actually like to see uh, what, what have been the results of the last 100,000 times this procedure has been done, and what do we know about who's it effective on and who it's not. Um, even though a doctor, she might have an intuition on that kind of thing, I actually want to see the numbers. I think that you, you end up undermining art when you look at something like, when you think about something like pop music. And so with auto-tune or with a good sense of like the demographics and things like that and certain beat patterns, you can in some ways engineer, and this has been going on for a couple of decades, you can kind of sort of engineer a hit song rather than create in an artistic way a hit song that you can know, okay, this is the beat pattern that people are gonna to respond to. This is the way to use auto-tune to make sure the voice is perfect. This is the kind of melody and the kind of words that we know appeals to this demographic. So you can engineer a song, and you know, I think that ends up undermining art. But the things that end up getting really popular are these, these leaps of faith, these things that human judgment and human creativity do better than anything else. So, so for me, it's like, I don't, I don't see this war between human judgment and creativity and algorithms and data. I think that they're both valuable. Well, may, maybe that's a wall in my mind that I just got to knock down. Yeah. But, uh, did you do good in science in high school? Uh, I didn't really like science in high school. I didn't like science. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know. I know. I didn't like science until, <laughs> until, um, until I got to college and even out of college. Like if I had, a dip, if I had uh, and that's partly because the way, uh, sort of the way we teach science in schools. What was your chemistry teacher like? In high school? I had a pretty decent chemistry teacher, but basically with chemistry, um, for me, it was, um, uh, I didn't really care. Like, I wasn't curious about chemistry. And so I did well in chemistry only because a lot of the chemistry tests are relatively simple math, and I'm pretty good at math, and that was it. So I was very good at getting the right answer in chemistry. I didn't know squat about chemistry. I still don't know squat about chemistry. Yeah, you know what really strikes me is that I went through high school chemistry. It's a long story, and I've actually told it to Bill Nye on the podcast, where I went through chemistry the first time, and I, I just couldn't pay attention. And then I went back about 20 years later to do it in an actual high school mm -hmm. with 16-year-old kids mm -hmm. after my son was born, just mm -hmm. to prove that I could do it. Mm -hmm. And it was much easier because I could pay attention. But And you probably learned something, too. I think what I learned most about it was that because I wasn't successful at it the first time, I always doubted that I could be successful at it. And then I went back and was getting hundreds, and I realized it was really when I oh, okay. was in the classroom. Right, okay. So, right. It was a complete question of when. So you at age 16 were not ready for it. You at age 36 were ready for it. Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. And so it, it really makes me wonder but that's if, a, okay. if we should be teaching chemistry or if we should be teaching when. <laughs> or neither. I think it's a great point. And I think it's actually an important way to think about ourselves. This is, there's a principle of psychology called the end of history illusion. The end of history illusion. So if you ask people this question here, so I'll ask you. 
at age 35, were you a different person from the, who you were at age 20? Yes and no. Okay. Um, did you have the same interests, same goals, same life philosophy? Different, different goals, but at essence, very curious. Okay. At essence, lover of stories. But at age 20, I was not ready to meet a girl and settle down. Mm -hmm. And at age 35, I was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's another question of when. Right. Well, I mean, part of this end of history illusion is that when, when people say, people tend to, when they look retrospectively, they say, oh, wow, I'm a different person than I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I know so much more. I've had this whole set of experiences that shaped me to be a different different person. But then when they look prospectively for the next 15 years, they say, oh, no, I'll probably be pretty much the same. <laughs> and, and, you know, so so we think we think that we have, that's the end of history illusion. We, have, we, basically, we feel like we... We basically, who we are today is who we're going to be 10 years from now, but that's never the case. I mean, I'm a different person than I was 10 years ago. That person's a different person than he was 10 years ago, and that person's a different person. What's, Not, the, what's the difference between you 10 years ago and you now? I know a lot more. I'm a lot smarter. I think I'm a kinder person than I was, than I was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I think I'm a less uptight person than I was 10 or 15 years ago. I think I'm more sophisticated about certain things. I think I'm much more aware of what I don't know. Um, so, I, so again, I, the, the person who was inhabiting this body, well, the body has changed too, obviously. The, 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 when I think about who I was 15 years ago, that's a different person than, than I am today. And chances are the person I am 15 years from now is going to be a different person. That, it has to be a different person than I am right now because I'm going to have a different set of, of experiences. Um, and that's going to, that's going to shape me. That's, it doesn't mean that my DNA changes. No, no, but it, it actually helps me look at things with an uplifting point of view. I guess the only problem is the physical yeah. may change as I have breakfast every morning with Larry King. And he's always saying when you, when you get into your well, how 80s, old is he? he must be like 112. Uh, no, he's not that. He's uh, gonna be, uh, I think, eighty-five. Oh, is that it? He's gonna no, be eighty-five. Okay. So he's a young guy. Yeah. And he always says that when you reach that age, the next day probably is not gonna be as good as the last. Mm. It's just because you're physically, yeah. yeah, physically your body is just yeah, yeah. slowly breaking down. But I don't know, maybe there'll be ways that science deals with that in the future. Well, there are a lot of people working on that issue now. Might be too late for us. You think so? Might be, yeah. I'll tell you, I did this, these Spartan obstacle races. I've pushed back the clock. Good. I definitely feel 20 years younger. Lost almost 30 pounds. Wow. And here's the thing. I'm thinking of myself running in the afternoon at just when you told me the optimal times were, and I know that's when I'm at my best. Good. And that's that's I, when I, I'm going to do I run in it. the afternoons too. I do. I do. I exercise late. Uh, I, I exercise late in the afternoon. It's my go-to time for exercising. Unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of races. So I do some like you know, like ten milers or I'm doing a half marathon in a couple of weeks. Um, those are all in the morning, which I really hate. So I feel like crap during the first four miles, three or four miles. 
That's an interesting. That's that's is your body temperature heating up after Could the four months? Well, part of it is that I'm I'm old and I'm slow. <laughs> Another part of it is just is is like is you know is lactic acid in my in my in my legs. But um, I'm much pref- I always prefer to exercise later in the day. Always, morning exercise for me is torture. I gotta say this this day has been monumental for me. <laughs> I'm glad, Cal. It's I, awesome. I, no, I am really going to approach my podcast in a completely different way because I've been doing it the meatloaf way. I've been cutting off the ends because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. But maybe I should be putting out eight-minute podcasts. Yeah, or no. Listen to your listeners. See what your listeners do. See what your listeners want. You know what? I got it. We put out a survey, but I'm going to have to change the survey to find out exactly. Yeah. How do I do that? Pay more attention to what people do, not what they say. So if you, do you have any data on, 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 on how long people listen? (laughs) I don't, if I did, I probably didn't look at it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the podcasting world enough to know whether there is that. So that's, that's what I would, that's what I would want to know. I have run totally counter to numbers. And I think what I'm taking out of this conversation is this Cal, it's time to pay attention to the numbers. You should pay attention to the numbers. You don't numbers don't have to rule you. Right. Numbers don't have to rule you. The fact that if if people want something shorter, you have a choice as an artist of giving them something shorter. You say, you know what? I like it this length. So take it or leave it. Don't I, I I'm not that way. Yeah. Because it will make me curious to think of well, how could I present this in three minutes or eight minutes or 12 minutes? Well, the other thing you can do is that you can, you can offer chapters. You say, uh, on today's episode, uh, today's episode has five chapters. Um, let's start with uh, chapter one is about this, chapter two is about this, chapter three is about this, chapter four is about this, chapter five is about this. I'm having a conversation with Daniel Pink today. It has five chapters. In the first chapter, we talk about this. In the second chapter, we talk about this. In the fourth chapter, we talk about this. And then have those kinds of navigational markers all the way along. So if I know that chapter one is 10 minutes long and I know that I'm going to be standing at the, uh, in the Safeway line for, for, for 10 minutes, I can pop that on. We're going to see where this all takes <laughs> me. <laughs> It'll go where it goes. It goes where it goes. And I'm not going to make any decisions about it at two in the afternoon. So it's not going to sink like the Lusitania. I don't want you to be sunk by a German U-boat, Cal. <laughs> not going to happen. We're going to do the research, and I don't know where this is going, but it starts now. Excellent. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Cal. It's been a pleasure. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss, as always, for changing my life by pushing me to start this podcast. And Luz Fleming for the audio work. Plus, all the folks at Chicago Ideas Week for making me feel so welcome. I always wanted to call Chicago my home for a time in my life. And for a few days in October, Chicago Ideas Week allowed me to do just that. Much gratitude, Chicago. Cheers! Thank you.